0: want to share a little bit this morning as, a, as an intro into a new series we're going to be looking at, and, and that's, uh, uh, we're calling it Friend Requests, and it's trying to understand what biblical friendship is. Uh, in a, a world that seems to be getting faster and faster, and uh, technology makes things easier and easier for us, um, for many of us, we've relegated friendship to Facebook, and uh, we've uh, figured out that the more uh, friends we have on Facebook or social media, um, the better people we are, the more friendly we are. Um, so just want to see if you're on Facebook, you're part of um, one, third, one quarter to one third of the world's population. I don't know if you knew that, um, but just quick check. Who's on Facebook over here? You can, I mean, this is a safe place. You can put up your hand. So those of you who don't have your hands up, I, if this wasn't church, i call you a liar. Um, just kidding. Uh, most most of us are actually on Facebook over here. Many of us, not only are we on Facebook, also our businesses are on uh, Facebook. Um, and if you're not on Facebook, you, Facebook, you definitely know about Facebook. And uh, most of us know how Facebook works. Now, what's really interesting is I was reading through this. I found that uh, in 2011, the guy who held the record for the most number of friends on Facebook, 2011, the most. Number of friends on Facebook, 301. You see, I hear the lots. You know why? Because the people who laugh probably have more than 301 right now. Okay? So, so right now, many of you who are on Facebook, you're probably past 100 or maybe even 301. By 2013, a gent by the name of William Scott Goldberg, he eclipsed the 301 held by Simon Kirk. Um, he eclipsed that. And, uh, and his friendship list... Um, sat at 6,223. Imagine what a popular guy he was. Imagine how well-liked he was. Imagine how rich he was that he could pay um, to buy birthday gifts and write Christmas cards for his 6,223 friends. He's a guy you want to be friends with. You know, If you want the name, I'll give it to you afterwards. You too can become his friend um, on Facebook. The reality is that sometimes we just gather so many people around us. We think that they're our friends and we've relegated friendship to technology. But the truth is, is that in the world where things are getting faster and faster and we've now said, well, technology will take care of my friends because I'm too busy. We've moved totally out of the realm of friendship. These are not friends. They are not even acquaintances sometimes. Uh, Sometimes I get friend requests from people who... I have no idea who they are and none of my friends know who they are either. There's somebody from North Korea who wants to be my friend, which is scary at the moment. I don't want to be any friends with anyone who's still living in North Korea right now. It could be dangerous, you know. The God of the Bible is a friendship God. The God of the Bible is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit which shows us the fellowship of our God and shows us how important friendship is. And if we are living in a world that desires relationship so much, we we talk about our young people and young adults as being relational. Everything's relational with them. Yet they are, and we are growing up in a world where we're stepping further and further away from one-on-one personal relationship. And it's being relegated to social media and some algorithm held in a computer in Silicon Valley. One of the best teachers on relationship is the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul writes about relationship, and you see it working out in his life. Paul wrote nearly two-thirds of the New Testament, and at the end of some of his letters, he says the following, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. So-and-so sends greetings. Greet my beloved, and then he mentions the name. And he talks about these people. You see the list. If you, if you write down all these names of the people who he's saying, greet this person, greet that person, greet that person, you end up with this really long list of friends that he had. And they weren't just acquaintances, they were friends, because he called them beloved. My beloved—it's the same word that uh, that is in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, agape love, unconditional kind of love. It's beloved. He uses it of Timothy. My beloved Timothy, which feels a bit awkward if you're a man. I don't know when the last time is, gents. The last time you wrote a letter to another guy, and uh, you said to him, uh, "My beloved <laughs> Richard, just want you to know you're a great guy." You know, right? It's all, society's got a word for that, it's called bromance, if you didn't know. It's a bromance, you got a bromance with this guy. It feels really weird, you know, especially when you're writing it in a pink shirt. Um, it does feel really weird. In the first century, Aristotle did a heap of work on friendship, and he defines three different kinds of friendships. He designs, he, he talks about friendship of utility, and a friendship of utility is where you get something out of the relationship. In the world that we are living today, that would be your employees who work with you. You go, yeah, those are my friends. No, they're not your friends, because when they're not working for you, you don't talk to them anymore. That's not a friend. That's somebody who gives to you. So, So you receive benefit from that. Your employee receives benefit from you. You pay them. You act like friends when you go on a team build, but you're not really friends, because when you no longer work there, you don't talk anymore. Don't hang out over the weekend. Don't bribe together unless you want to build a relationship because you want them to do better in the job because if they do better in the job, they can make more money for you. Then you have the friendship of pleasure. And this is where you're friends with somebody because you both have a desired outcome. So there's something you really enjoy. And so you get something out of that relationship. And the third one was the friendship of virtue. And this is where two people or more would pursue life together, a life of growing ethically, morally, and spiritually together so that their characters can be deeper. Which one do you think Paul started connecting with? It's the third one. And so when Paul talks about friendship, he starts to talk about friendship that is rooted in love, deeply rooted in love. Paul, when you see the list of his friends, uh, he mentions Tychicus and Epaphras as faithful servants. That's one way he talks about his friends, faithful servants. These are people on a journey with him in order to reach a desired outcome, he calls them beloved. In Romans chapter sixteen, it's one of the best uh, lists where he lists all these kind of people. He calls them beloved. He calls uh, Tychicus one of these. He calls Persis one of these. He calls Epaphras one of these. He calls Luke one of these. In Colossians, he calls Onesimus. Onesimus, by the way, was a slave. He's the only named slave in the scriptures. He's a he's a slave, but Paul says he's my beloved. What about Timothy? Who can forget Timothy? We went through that series last year. Timothy, my beloved son in the faith. The word that he used over there is the word agape. It's the unconditional love. It's like saying, my unconditional loved one. I love you unconditionally, Timothy. I love you unconditionally. Tichikos, I love you unconditionally. So he says, my fellow workers, my beloved ones, but also my co-workers, Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple, Romans chapter 16 and verse 3, they planted a church with them and they had a church that met in their house, Aristarchus. Mark, who's John Mark, who wrote the book of Mark and Justice. Now remember, he says, my co-worker in Colossians 4, Mark, who I love dearly and who has been of great benefit to me. This is a guy who split from Paul in the early years and they had such a sharp dispute that he went with Barnabas and Paul carried on on his own mission journey together. So Paul talks about his friends in three different ways. He links friendship to unconditional love. This unconditional kind of love. This is what it means. I desire the very best for you, even if it feels like I'm getting nothing back in return. I want you to think about that. I desire the very best for you, even if it feels like I'm getting nothing back in return. This is how God loves us, and this is how we should be loving each other. Jesus says, for instance, in Ephesians, actually Paul writes this. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Unconditionally love your wives as Christ unconditionally loved the church. That means, gents, that we should be loving our wives, wanting the very best for them, even if it feels like we're getting nothing back in return. Well, that's a bit unfair. No, it's not unfair. That's Jesus' model to us. And when one person does that to the other person, the other person starts to respond in a positive way. In the same way that you respond to Jesus when he speaks to you, it's the same way a wife will respond to a husband when when he loves her unconditionally, desiring the very best for her, even if, you know, he feels like he's getting nothing back in return. How do we understand what this word love means? Because we can throw it around a lot. And we can say, well, love, you know, like, what is, is it this like? Is it this feeling? Is, you've heard people say love is a verb. You've got to do love. You've got to practice love. Well, what does it mean? Must I write people notes so that they will be my friend if we're going to understand love in the context of friendship? Scott McKnight does a great work on this as he unpacks the, the content of this kind of love in relationship, especially friendship today. Here's one of the first things biblical love is a rugged, commitment. Now, if you have your Bibles, Genesis 15 is where I'm going to comment on and you can have a look over there. It's a rugged commitment. It's not a cushy commitment. It's not a woo-hoo, feel good kind of commitment. It's a rugged commitment. It means it's going to be pushed backwards and forwards. It means that there's going to be come times when it's low and times when it's high, but it's robust and it's rugged. That's the kind of commitment that it is. To explain how this works, God comes to Abraham and says to Abraham, I've chosen you and I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to leave your father's household and you're going to move to the other side of the world and over there we're going to have a new people called Israel. So Abraham moves across. And one day you see in the opening paragraphs of John chapter 15, uh, excuse me Genesis chapter 15, God and Abraham having this conversation. It's a conversation that friends should be having. If you read it and you took the word God out and put the word Joe in there, it would just be the same as two friends having a conversation. God says to Abraham, I want you to know that I've chosen you and that you're going to be a great nation and and that I'm going to give you this land and, 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 and. And then Abraham responds back and he says, but how will this happen? I understand that you are my shield and you are my reward. But, you know, I'm not, I can't have children. I'm barren. My wife is barren. My, my property and everything I earn is going to go to my chief servant, Eliezer. It's all going to go to him. God says to him, no, no, I want you to know something. It's not going to go to your servant. It's going to go to your own flesh and blood. Not only is it going to go to your own flesh and blood, but also I'm going to give you land. And this is where the land is going to be. And I'm going to take you there. And when I take you there, I want you to know this, that in that place where I take your your people, they are going to be punished in that area. They're going to be taken prisoner in that area. And after four generations, I'm going to bring them out of that area. And, And he's having this conversation with God. And Abraham, the Bible says, Abraham believed and was credited to him as righteous. Abraham says to God, God, how will I know that you're going to do all this stuff? Thanks for the, God, that's a great pep talk. I believe it's going to happen. But how will I know? God says to him, I tell you, this is what you do. You go and you fetch a heifer, a young cow. Ooh. You go and fetch, fetch a heifer, a goat, a sheep, and you fetch some young doves. They must be three years old, the animals. And they must be without blemish, spot or blemish. And then you bring them. So he does. And then God directs him to cut them in half. Cuts them in half. And he lays them aside. One half on this side, one on that side. Then the sheep. Then the goat. And then he puts right at the end the birds. And then God talks to him again. And says to him, this is what I'm going to do again. This is how we're going to do this. This is what it's going to look like. And then right at the end... A pot appears with burning, uh, smoldering coals in it, and the pot passes through the halves of the animals. You just Can you imagine that? Like we read that now, we're like, oh, oh, all right. Can you imagine you're in your back garden, and God's talking to you about his future for you and your future? And he's like, this is what you do. Get some animals, cut them, lie them out. Your neighbors are like, hey, what are you doing? Uh, just I'm my quiet time. Chainsaw. Lie the things down like this over here. And then, and you're looking at this thing, and you're having a conversation with God. They can't see God. They think you've totally lost it. And out of nowhere, a pot appears. Boom. And the pot directs itself through the animal halves. What's going on here? What is going on in this thing? God causes him to fall asleep, and God speaks to him again and ministers to him again. Story ends. You know what God was doing? God was trying to give Abraham a physical picture of what would happen if God didn't keep his commitment to Abraham. I love you this much that you could dismember me if I don't keep my commitment to you. You can dismember me. My love for you is so great. You could dismember me if I don't keep that rugged commitment to you. Do you know how rugged it was? Abraham's own offspring disobeyed God. The people of Israel, God calls them adulterers because they, he says, you are are prostituting yourself with the nations of the world and with their gods. But if you repent, I will be your God and you'll be my people again. Year after year, generation after generation, God is making the same call to the people of Israel over and over and over again. They don't keep their side, but God keeps his love. For God so loved the world is a rugged commitment to someone. That's what marriage is, isn't it? A rugged commitment. Those of you who are married, you'll know that, guys, you wake up, your wife does not look like she looked the day she got married every day when she wakes up. My wife does. Your no. <laughs> and, and, and guys, you don't look like that either. I know some of you have got your suit still hanging in your, in your cupboard. I'm like my wedding suit It's just to remember what happened. Like the photos don't help. That suit doesn't help you remember what happened. It reminds you, you don't look like that anymore. It's a rugged commitment. It's a rugged commitment to love someone. Secondly, biblical love conveys a rugged commitment to presence, to be with someone. You can't say to your wife, hey, I love you, and you're never there. You get married. Uh, You go to the reception, go on honeymoon, and then you're like, okay, cool. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. I live in Cape Town, you live in East London. We never see each other again after that. That's not love. It was just a party. Love is you be with someone. How this applies to friendship is this. Biblical friendship says I will be with you. A rugged commitment to be with you. means I might not always be able to be with you, but it is a rugged commitment to to be with you. Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. That's what we're talking about. The God of the Old Testament is the God who said in Leviticus, I will be your God and you will be my people. Presence, I will be with you. In the New Testament, Jesus comes and lives in humanity. He lives here for 33 years, three of those years, walking with the disciples, teaching them, being with them. And then right at the end, he says, I have to go. I have to go, but I'm going to send another to be with you. Listen to how Jesus says this in John chapter 14. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but it will see you because I live you also will live on that day, you will that sorry, on that day you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. <laughs> Did you get that? On that day you'll realize that I'm in the Father and, and you're in me and I'm in you. That's a rugged commitment to presence. I will be with you. If Jesus was still here, he'd be in Jerusalem. If you wanted to speak to him, you'd have to phone him, like that pastor you read about in the Sunday Times. You'd have to phone him to talk to him. But he's not here like that. Jesus is not in Jerusalem. Jesus is in heaven and he sent his Holy Spirit to be here. So that whether you are in Vincent or whether you are in Jerusalem, the presence of God can be with you and God can be present with you. That's a rugged commitment to presence. Friends, that's what love is. A rugged commitment. Proverbs 27 and verse 10. Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend. And do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity or or only in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. This is what a friend is. It's someone who is near, someone who is with you. But good friends also recognize boundaries. A good friend is not the person who's always hanging around. You know, they kind of arrive at five o'clock and stay until seven after you've like invited them for supper again. You know, do you guys want to stay? We just have to feed our kids. It's getting a bit late. Oh yeah, okay. If there's enough, no, there isn't enough, but I'll have to make more for our family after you leave. That's not a friend, right? This is what Proverbs says. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. Benjamin Franklin said, guests like fish stink after three days. Um, I don't know how you are. But a really good friend is committed to be with you. But a really good friend also understands that we all need our own space. But they're still committed to be with you. A really good friend is not someone who's only there when things are good. They're there when things are bad. They're also not, a good friend is not only someone who's there when things are bad. They're also there when things are good. See, really good friends ruggedly commit to being present with each other. That's what friendship is. We commit to being with each other. Second, or third one is that biblical love conveys a rugged commitment to advocacy. Advocacy. This is not only to be with them, it's to be for them. Romans 8:31. if God is for us, who can be against us? That's the rugged commitment to be for us. God is for you, friends. This is the, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus, when he died on the cross and rose again, he just he didn't just disappear and go, well, you're on your own. He said, I'm committed to you. I'm for you. This is not being friends so that I can get something out of it. It's friends so that I'm for you and you can get something out of it. Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 15, I'm not going to call you servants anymore, but I'm going to call you friends. See, servant is the relationship of utility. Friend is the relationship of virtue. Friend is, I'm going to love you ruggedly, unconditionally. I'm going to be with you and I'm going to be for you. That's what friendship is in the Bible. It implies guarding each other's character. It implies standing up for each other when you hear someone talking about that person. And sometimes just the simple line of, gee, I don't know that person to act like that. That can just put the whole thing to bed right there. People realize, "Uh uh-oh, this person knows this person. Better stop having that conversation. And they'll go have the conversation anyway. They won't do it with you. Or forgiveness. It implies forgiveness. No friendship can last without forgiveness. No friendship, no marriage can last without forgiveness forgiveness Proverbs 17 and verse 9 whoever covers an offense seeks love but he who repeats the matter separates close friends. It teaches us to be generous with the gift of forgiveness. Do you know that forgiveness is a gift and you are, when you forgive somebody you're being generous and giving them that gift and you can hold it back if you want to or you can be like God who is generous in giving forgiveness. If you want to make good friends and you want to be a good friend, it means that you need to be generous with that gift of forgiveness. And it's not something you have to earn. You don't earn forgiveness to give forgiveness. You just give it. You see, you can never give enough of that forgiveness because we're always going to mess up. And the more you demonstrate your commitment to being present, the more you demonstrate your commitment to advocacy. The more I'm with you, the more I show I'm for you. You can't say to somebody, hey, you're my friend, I want you to know I've got your back, when you're never with them. And so if if you're going, well, how do we build relationship? If you're in a small group, you're a small group leader. You go, well, you know, we really want to be friends here. I want to grow friendship in this group. The best way that you start growing friendship is by doing things together. Because unless you're with each other, you can never be for each other. We have to be with each other. And the more we're with each other, the more we communicate our forness. For each other. Last one. Biblical love conveys a rugged commitment to direction. A rugged commitment to direction. To grow with that person. So to be with them, to be for them, and to grow with them. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you or in me will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That God loved us so much that he committed to being with us and for us and to growing us. He is holy. The Bible says, be holy because I'm holy, God says. Because if you want to have a relationship with him, we need to be more like him. But he doesn't say, now do that on your own. He says, here's my commitment to you. I will help you become like me. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to become a man. I'm going to display rugged commitment to love you. And I'm going to be ruggedly committed to being with you and for you, so much so that I'm going to die on a cross for you. And then, after I've died on the cross, I will die for all your sins so that your sin is gone and you can be like me, holy like me. I will forgive all of your sin. Now let's start a relationship together. Now we grow in that relationship, and now I will bring to completion what I started there. I'm not just leaving. that's you see, that's a starting point, but that's not the end point. Being born again is the start point. It's not the end. We grow in God together. We grow in our relationship with God. So as we grow, we become more like him. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Some of you may know this guy. C.S. Lewis. We picture lovers face to face, but friends side by side. Their eyes look ahead. This is why pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Friendship must be about something, even if we only have enthusiasm for dominoes or white masks. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Biblical friendship is, let's walk together on the journey of knowing God. Biblical friendship is, I don't want to be where I am today. I don't want to be here next year. Let's walk together. Let's hold each other accountable. Let's be intentional about what we do and what we say and how we live our lives. That's biblical friendship. It's not just leave you. If God is not leaving you where you are, how can I leave you where you are if I say I'm going to be your friend? Of course, I want you to grow. That means that from time to time we have to show each other faults. Proverbs 27, verse 5 to 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend or profuse and plentiful are the kisses of an enemy. A real brother, a real friend, lets us know what our faults are timehersly so we can fix them. Oscar Wilde said that, he said, friends, stab you in the front. I I wouldn't suggest you see him as a theologian, but still, it does carry weight. Friend is someone who's committed to growing with me, not leaving me there, but growing with me, being with me, being for me, loving me. friends, if we, if we're going to see ourselves as friends in this place, coming together Sunday after Sunday, this is the only place where rich and poor sit next to each other in a public meeting voluntarily. It's the only place where black and white gather to do that. It's the only place where those with status and those without status, it's the only place where those who are old and young, it's the only place where those who are male and female all come together and sit together and be together. Do you know why? Because God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son to die for you and for me. And when you met him, we all came to him at the foot of the cross that is level. The Bible says that Jesus said, I'm not calling you servants anymore, but I call you friends. And he said, now you love each other. And if you love each other, then the world will know that you are my disciples or my friends. So you love each other. It's funny, as you start loving each other in this rugged way, ruggedly loving, intentionally loving a person, intentionally, ruggedly being with them, being for them, and growing with them, as you start to do these things, You look back and you go, hey, we're friends. Hey, we're friends. But you know what? We're coming to this building, sit next to the people we're sitting next to, unless you were brought here by a friend, unless you're sitting next to your spouse, unless you're sitting with your small group. Chances are you've been sitting next to the same people year in and year out if you've been here for a while. If you haven't been here for a long time, it's week in, week out. If you're here for the first time, it's just today. In which case, you've been sitting next to that person since you arrived (laughs) And unless we're intentional about building friendships, we just don't do it. A good place to start that is to be in a small group where you can get to know a group of people and grow together in a friendship with a small group of people. Friends, that's what the Bible looks like. That's biblical friendship. You need those people in your life. If you don't have those people in your life, you'll end your life with 6,223 friends on Facebook and no one meaning anything to you. Gerald Miller, as he loves us, he would have us love others. We say that men are not worthy of such friendships. True, they're not. Neither are we worthy of Christ's wondrous love for us. But Christ loves us, not according to our worthiness, but according to the riches of his own loving heart so should be so should it be with our giving of friendship. Not as the person deserves, but after the measure of our own character. Your ability to be friends with the person next to you says way more about you than it does about the person next to you. That's what that means. God took the initiative, became a man, showed love to us, being with us, being for us, still to this day where he defends you in the courtroom of heaven against the accuser and committed, ruggedly committed to seeing you grow. And then he says to us, now we go do the same thing. That's what rugged friendship is. That's what biblical friendship is. Now let's pray together. Father, this this morning, uh, Lord, we want to thank you that you You're the God who took initiative, that you are a friendship God, that you're a God who's all about fellowship. Your character and your nature is about fellowship. And so, God, we ask you that you'd help us to do this. God, that you'd help us to to do this as a church. Lord, when we stand up and say, well, we want to become members of this church, essentially what we're doing is saying, I'm committed to ruggedly love those around me, to ruggedly love and get to know and be with and be for those who are part of this body so God, would you help us to do that? Maybe today you don't know who Jesus is. You've heard about him. You've heard that he died for your sin. Maybe today you want to respond to his friendship to you. He ruggedly loved you. Perhaps you'd respond to him today and just say, God, forgive me of my sin. Please fill me with your spirit. I know I don't deserve this. But God, would you forgive me of all my sin today? God, help me to follow you and build relationships with people who help me to grow in you. Father, for those who prayed their prayer, I pray in Jesus' name that you'd fill them with your Holy Spirit, with great power, And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all those who agreed said amen. Amen. God bless everybody.